All right, I'm sure everyone is going to be very glad to know my Fitbit is okay. It's perfectly fine. Uh, as soon as I said that, I was like, I bet my mic's still on. And so I got that turned off. But yeah, today's a great day, special day, always a special day when we have the opportunity to baptize some folks, especially two that are uh, as near and dear to my heart as Kate and Hallie are. Uh, just a special day. And, and, and where we're at in our walk through the book of First Timothy really could almost be like a charge uh, to these two young ladies because it kind of answers the question of what now? Like, you know, you become a Christian, and that's the starting point, okay? That's not the end point. Becoming a Christian, that's the starting point. And then someday, the end point is when we die and we're in heaven with Christ for, forever, all right? So that's the consummation. But, but what happens in between? What now? Now that you are a Christian, what now? And so very, like, to Kate and Hallie, this is kind of where we're at, but, all, but for all of us. Anyone in here who is a Christian, what now? What are we to be about now? What is our life to be shaped by now? What are we to look like? What are we to do? And then for those who maybe aren't Christian, like, just to learn, well, what are Christians to do? Because we do a lot of stuff that we shouldn't do, and we don't do a lot of stuff that we should do. We need help. So what are we to do? And that's kind of really what the whole, the whole book of First Timothy is seeking to answer. Like, how are we to live our lives? Because the, first, uh, the, the, the theme of the entire book of First Timothy really is this call to fight the good fight. That is, to wage the good warfare. That is, to how, like, live out the implications of the gospel. That we've been made, we've been declared positionally, um, you know, we've been set apart by Christ positionally, We've been declared godly, and now we're to become that in practice. And so how do we do that? What, you know, how do we move in that direction? And so thus far in this book, we've seen this call to fight for sound doctrine. We've seen a call to fight for right practice in corporate worship. We've seen a call to fight for the right kind of leaders in the church, elders and deacons. And then today, as we move into chapter 4, Paul very like pointedly is calling us to fight for godliness in our own lives. Like that's what is now, Hallie and Kate. We pursue godliness. We pursue Christ's likeness, becoming like him, pursuing holiness. And to be clear, our pursuit of godliness in no way, shape, or form is what qualifies us to be able to stand before God. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we try to merit or earn righteousness, we cannot earn enough to merit ourselves before Christ. We cannot stand clean before God the Father on our own. We don't have that level of righteousness. And so we need the righteousness of someone else. And that's the whole point of the gospel that Kate and Hallie gave testimony to. Jesus came and lived a perfect life because we haven't. And he came and did it for us. And then our sin debt that we owe, that we should pay because we're the ones who have sinned against God. We've committed treason. We've rebelled. Well, Jesus came and he paid that for us. So we don't have to. And then to prove that he is the son of God. And that he has paid the wrath of God. The, the beef has been crushed with God. Three days later, he walked out of the grave. He rose 
again. And so it's that that qualifies us to be able to stand holy and blameless before the God. What Jesus did, not what we do. So we don't stand up here. Girls, you'll never, you shouldn't ever walk around with a swagger as if you are awesome and have done something spiritually. You are recipients of grace. And so we rejoice in that. It's not something we've done. It's something that Christ has given to us. So we are recipients of grace. And now, because of that, we pursue godliness. Not to get God, but because we have been given God, now we pursue godliness. And that's what First Timothy 4 uh, is all about. This call to godliness. That word's used 15 times throughout the New Testament. Nine of them are in this book. And it's Paul just hammering the importance of living a godly life. But this call to a godly life, it, it doesn't just happen. Okay, you're not walking along, slip on a piece of ice, hit your head, wake up, and you're like, man, I'm grown in Christ. I'm more godly. It doesn't happen that way. You have to pursue. You have to fight. You have to have some intentionality in your life. And it's a grace-driven effort, but it's an effort that you must make nonetheless. It's very much like this quote I used to have in my house or in my room back in the day when, uh, when I was an athlete uh, in college. It's a Vince Lombardi quote, and it said, um, the will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. The will to win is not nearly as important. Like everybody wants to win in the moment, but are you willing to do the work to win? Everybody's like, yeah, I want to be godly in the moment, but are you willing to put in the work? To live a godly life. And that's what Paul helps us with. There's a million ways you could answer that question. He gives us three in this text this morning. And the first one, just like any good training program, it deals with your diet. You've got to eat right. And so if you'll look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. All right, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback one around you. We're going to be on page 992 in that Bible. All right, page 992, again, like John said, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift to you. If you flip to page 992, and please follow along. Uh, big number is the chapter, so big, bold four, that's the chapter. Little numbers are the verses. First Timothy chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 6. Again, page 992 in the Bibles around you. Look at verse 6 with me. If you put these things before the brothers, what things? Well, really pretty much the whole book, but in particular, verses 1 through 5, where he's calling out some false teaching, some wrong-headed thinking as it relates to the gospel. If you put these things before the brothers or brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church here. You will be a good servant, Greek word diakonos, literally deacon, that's what a deacon is, it's this good servant. Right, so you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Right, and so I want to draw your attention to that word trained there in verse 6, because it's different than the word trained that's used twice in verse 7. Different words. All right? In verse 7, the word for trained is gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium. So it's got the smell of sweat in it. It's got the smell of work in it. Gymnazo. But in verse 6, it's not gymnazo. It's in trephanos, which literally means to nourish oneself. So it's all about eating. 
And so if we insert that way of translating into verse 6, this is the way it would read. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourishing yourself in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have to follow. And so it's all about eating, that we are to eat, that we're to eat what? We are to eat the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And so in other words... Eat a steady diet of Bible and good teaching. And so if you're taking notes, that's going to be number one. As we're seeking this training plan, number one, eat a steady diet of Bible and good teaching. It's like back in the day, if all I ate was junk, my body was not going to be fueled for optimal performance. And it's the same here. Without a steady diet of the Bible and good teaching, you will not... Progress towards godliness. In every sport today, people are looking for some supplement that they can take. And you go back several years ago with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds and all the clear and the cream and all these things that, you know, everyone's looking for some secret supplement. But for the Christian, we don't have to look for some secret supplement. Christ gave it to us. And it's called the Bible. Take it up and read. And I want to make, we don't understand the gift that this thing is. I mean, if we just went back 400 years, if we hopped into DeLorean and went back 400 years, not that long ago, not that long ago, but we would be killed for owning a Bible. Go look at like part of the English Reformation and William Tyndale and all those folks, even the guy we were praying for a minute ago in Iran. That's why he's in jail because he had a, he had about 200 Bibles. He wanted to give them out. And so, Bibles are everywhere. You've got them in print. You've got them on your Kindle. You've got them on your phone. You can put them on a tablet. Everywhere. And yet the American church is starving from an epidemic of biblical illiteracy. And no one reads. No one opens it up and sees. Instead, we love gobbling up spiritual junk food based upon corny Christian cliches instead of the meat and potatoes that sustained the church for thousands of years. You need meat and potatoes, not junk food. And so, friends, jump in. Read. Open it up. There's 1,189 verses, or chapters. 1,189 chapters, divided by 365. It's 3.25 chapters a day, and you read through the whole Bible. 3.25 chapters a day, you read through the whole Bible. And it's an amazing book. Written on three continents by over 40 authors across thousands of years with one central theme. Jesus. He's on every page. Maybe not in name, but in type, in foreshadowing, in prophecy. Every single page whispers his name. And so open it up. Read it. Even if you're not sure about that, I don't know about all that. Read it. See. See. He's on every page. And it's a book that's amazing. So it's easy enough for kids to understand, but it's deep enough for the greatest minds of history, like Thomas Akempis, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, to never be able to plumb its depth. And so make it a habit. Eat a steady diet of Bible. All right? But not just that, also good Bible teaching, because it says words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
And so good Bible teaching as well. And so you can listen on the radio. You can get a podcast. You can download an app. The greatest preachers in the world are at your fingertips. And so I encourage you to do that. I've got my favorites. Alistair Begg, Matt Chandler, Mark Dever, Eric Mason. Love to listen to these guys. And so do that. I encourage that. But the primary means that God has ordained in his word that we are to get our Bible trains by this is gathering together corporately for worship and sitting under the public preaching of the Bible. That's God's primary vehicle for growing you through teaching. And so that's the reason that 90% of the time in here we just walk through a passage just like we're doing today. And I just read it, I try to explain it, I try to illustrate it, and I try to apply it. That's my job. And so people will be like, well, how do you decide what, you know, you're going to preach? Well, I'm like, well, first I select a book. Well, how do you select a book? Well, I believe it's all the Word of God, so I just pick one. And I trust God's going to do His work through it. We generally go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. But that's pretty much what I do. And so you've got to have a steady diet. Right? That's just fundamental to a basic training plan. And parents, you've got to make sure your kids have a steady diet too. And this is where just we come to one of the most, what I think is just insane pieces of modern Christian life today. And it comes from a good place. I get, I get the heart behind it. But that doesn't forgive just the terrible logic that's in it. And it's this. Well, you know, I don't want to force my kids to, to go to church. You know, I, I, I don't want them to hate it. Well, here's the insanity of this, that statement. Is there any other sphere in your life where you follow that logic? Do you do that with school? I don't want my kids to hate it, so I'm not going to make them go. you do that with their obedience to you? I don't want them to hate me, so I'm not going to make them obey me. Do you do that with like a job, if they have a summer job? Well, I don't want them to hate their job, so I'm not going to make them go if they don't want to. Do you do that with their supper? You know, I don't want to make them hate broccoli. So I'm not going to make them eat it. I don't want them, you know, I don't want them to hate it. You do it with their sports. Well, you know, I'm not going to make them go and practice. If it doesn't feel like it, I don't want them to hate it. No. For the things that are important, you make them get up and get it done. That's what's called being a parent. You're pointing them, you're pushing them, you're orienting them, you are modeling before them. And so if you're modeling, you know, Jesus and and, and the church, the things of Christ, they're great insofar as they fit in your schedule of these other things you would prefer to do. Or if you're modeling Jesus and the church, they're great insofar as you feel like it. If you're doing that, you're teaching them, not with words, but with your much more powerful actions most things in life, including their personal wants and wishes, you're teaching them they are more important than Christ. As long as you feel like, as long as it fits in your schedule. No, 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 no. We have to pick up our cross and carry it. And you've got to train them that. And so just like you would do with, fit, with your kids' physical food, make sure they're eating well. Right? A steady diet of Bible and teaching, both for them and for you. And we've got all kinds of resources to help you with all kinds of ages. Just let us know. We'd be glad to help you with that. But in your pursuit of godliness, it's imperative that you eat well, 
how he indicates imperative that you eat a steady diet of Bible and good teaching. That's step one. Step two in Paul's training plan. Step two, exercise your soul. So number two in your sermon guide, exercise your soul. Look at verse seven with me. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, horoscopes and all kinds of craziness that they had similar things in the time. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There's that word again. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And so if you read through the New Testament, it becomes abundantly clear that Paul was a sports fan. Right? He was a fan of the Olympics. You see references to wrestling, you see references to boxing, you see references to track and field. And so he loved sports. Where's John? He loved sports. And so he recognizes the value of bodily training. He says it has value. It really does. And so we should seek to steward our bodies that God has given us. We should do that. I'm a big believer in that. But eventually you will die. It's coming for every single one of us. And all the benefits of physical training at that time expire. They're of no value. But not godliness. It's got value now and then. Like, like in this life, it has value in the home, in church, in business, in your family, in your singleness. It's got value both in times of trouble and in times that things are just going great. It helps you deal with enemies as well as friends. It guides you in every situation. But as useful as it is in the present life, it holds even more promise For the life to come. Godliness is the one thing that you really can take with you to the grave. Like all the medals, all the accolades, all the awards that an athlete can earn. You go back to this time, the Olympics at the time, they would give them a crown that was like a laurel wreath. All that's going to burn up. But for those who pursue godliness, you will be given a crown of glory that will not burn up. And so we've got to train. We've got to go to work. We've got to exercise our souls. One of my favorite authors is an Anglican theologian named J.I. Packer. I'm reading through a book with a friend of mine in here called Knowing God. And just this week we read this. We're familiar with the thought that our bodies are like machines needing the right routine of food, rest, and exercise if they're to run efficiently and liable. If filled with the wrong fuel... Alcohol, drugs, poison, they lose their power of healthy functioning and ultimately seize up entirely in physical death. What we are perhaps slower to grasp is that God wishes us to think of our souls in a similar way. As rational persons, we were made to bear God's moral image. That is, our souls were made to run on the practice of worship, law-keeping, truthfulness, honesty, discipline, self-control, service to God and our fellows. If we abandon these practices, not only do we incur guilt before God, we also progressively destroy our own souls. Conscious atrophies 
The sense of shame dries up. One's capacity for truthfulness, loyalty, and honesty is eaten away. One's character disintegrates. And we've all seen this physically. This idea of like, you know, things atrophying or, or just an imbalance in somebody. I mean, you've, you've gone to the beach and you've seen the guy that like waist up is just jacked. And then waist down is just twigs. You're like, do some squats. It's good for you. Now, God doesn't want us to be like that. He doesn't want muscles atroph- atrophying weakening, drying up. He wants us strong in Him in all areas, not just a few, all of our life. Not just a couple of things that will set aside, that's yours, God, but this over here is mine. No, all of His life is yours. All of your life is His. He wants every bit of us. And so exercising your soul absolutely involves things like we've already talked about, reading the Word, reading the Bible, gathering in here, but it also involves things like other spiritual disciplines. Prayer, giving, acts of mercy, acts of serving, continual repentance, denying yourself, taking up your cross, bearing someone else's burden. But even if you do all those things, there's no like absolute 100% guarantee. Like if I do this, 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 and this, I will become a more godly person. You might become more of a Pharisee. Because I did this, and I did this, and I did this. What did you do? Huh, I did this, and this, and this, and this. So you could just be doing it and to become a Pharisee. You could just be doing it to pat yourself on the back. You could just be doing it to try to look awesome in front of your friends. So that is possible. So we need to be careful of that. But nevertheless, these acts of devotion, though not a guarantee, they are the drills that God has appointed for our spiritual training. So it's kind of like rain. Well, if you stay in your house all the time, are you ever going to get wet from the rain? Not a hard question. No, 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 no. Right? If you stay outside all the time, are you going to get wet? Eventually, yeah, it's going to rain. Right? Now, do you cause the rain? No. Do you know when the rain's going to come? Really, no. The weather forecasters, no, uh-uh. So you don't know when the rain's going to come either. You don't cause it. You don't know when it's going to... And, and this is kind of like the idea and the purpose of spiritual disciplines. They do not cause godliness to automatically happen, but they put us in a position such that when it does rain, we get wet. Put us in a position to grow in godliness by doing these drills. And so Paul says, exercise your soul. Train. Gymnazo. Go to the gym. Work out. Sweat. Put in an effort. And just as it is often helpful in a gym setting to have a coach, personal trainer, or whatever, so it is in the Christian life to have a coach, to have someone who's walking with you. In a church, you've got pastors and elders. But like personally, a lot of times it's a good thing. When I was in college, I got discipled one-on-one once a week for two years by a guy named Marcus Hinton. He played wide receiver for Clemson in the early 90s. One of the most formative things in my life. Absolutely. Sarah's the same way with his wife named Chris. Two years, or three years for her, one-on-one discipleship. Led Sarah to Christ. Sarah came to college not knowing Jesus. Change your life. 
And so that's a good thing. I encourage you, pour into one another and be poured into by one another. Find someone you can take under your shoulder and find someone who will pour into you. But in one way, we all have a personal trainer if you are a Christian. You have one. His name is the Holy Spirit. He's your coach. He's your personal trainer. But you've got to carve out time to go to the gym and let him coach you. You've got to carve out time to pray. You've got to carve out time to read. You've got to carve out time to serve. None of these things are convenient. Take up your cross. You carry it daily. And so we've got to eat right. We've got to exercise our soul. These are things that you just have to do as Christians. This is part of our pursuit of godliness. But then another important aspect is that we are also called, and this is number three in your notes, to evangelize your sphere of influence. Evangelize your sphere of influence. Look at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, there at the end, he's not saying that all people are going to be saved. He's not saying like all people are going to be saved and then Christians are going to be extra saved, especially. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying Jesus is the Savior for everybody. But that only becomes effectual for those who believe. That's how it becomes effective. And so that's why you have to consciously choose to place your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior, as Kate and Hallie have done. You have to make that choice. And it's a choice that as Christians, we are to hold out to people. I mean, if the gospel is true, if there really is a heaven and hell, and faith in Christ is the only thing that makes the difference. And then to even quote Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, who, who is an atheist uh, comedian and performer in Vegas. Even he asks, if all that is true, then quote, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them that? And then beyond even just not hating someone, the word that Paul uses here in verse 10 of, of striving is agonizomai. It's where we get the word agonize. And so it's this idea here of striving, of working hard, of agonizing to the point of seeking to tell people about Christ and put this choice out to them, to hold out the gospel, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sins. Like that's what we're holding out. We are not holding out a way of life. We are not holding out a political platform. We are not holding out morals. We are not holding out a culture. We're not holding out a method. We're not holding out a religion. We're holding out a person. And his name is Jesus. And he's Lord God, Savior, and King. And he has mercy and grace for anyone who will repent and believe because his love for us isn't based on what we do, but what he did, his life, his death, his resurrection, substitution. And we hold that out. And if you're a Christian, that's what you've grabbed hold of. We have our hope set on the living God. And it's that that we gather in this place to celebrate every week. Christ has rescued us. Our sins are gone. We've been set free. We don't come in here and 
Think about how awesome we are. We're here because we know we're not. And we need help. And we need a Savior. To save us from sin, to save us from death, and to save us from ourselves. And that's what the fuel for growth in godliness and evangelism is. God has rescued us from our sins. He's taken them away. If you are a believer, God's not taking you home in glory yet because he has a sphere of influence for you. Whether that's helping lead someone to know Christ or discipling them or mentoring them or coaching them or pushing them or helping them. You have a sphere of influence that only you can reach, so reach it. Sister, brother, reach it. Strive. Agonizomai. And so just on all these things, eating, exercising, evangelizing, where are you at? Back in the day, I used to keep something that's called a running log. And in there, I would record, you know, uh, how I'd eaten that day, how much slep I had gotten the night before, what the weather was, how much I'd lifted, what the routine was for that, how much I'd run, what it was. Was it recovery? Was it a long day? Was it intervals on the track? What about treatment? Did I get stem? Did I take an ice bath? Did I get a massage? And not like fun massage, but elbow in your hamstring. Ah, massage. Not fun massage. Awful massage. Torture massage. And so I had this thing. And I could look back in it and I could just kind of see how it was progressing. And so in the running log of your spiritual life, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you progressing? How's your training coming? Are you growing? Is there movement in your life? And here's what I want to encourage you for just a minute. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And what I mean by that is like, as you look at your life, is there any growth? Is there any level of movement in your life? Praise the Lord. He's moving you towards godliness. And maybe it's not where you'd like it to be. Or maybe if you're a parent and it's not where I'd like my child to be. Or it's not where I'd like my spouse to be. Or it's not where I'd love to see my friend moving towards. But they're moving. Celebrate that. That's a good thing. There's movement. All right? But then friends, keep pressing. Keep pushing. Keep fighting. Because while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And so push and fight and train. The will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. So train yourself for godliness. Hallie, Kate, train yourself. For godliness. Everyone in here, train yourself. Let's pray. Father, that you are so good that you sent Jesus. And that your affections aren't about what we've done. As we've blown it. We still blow it. We're still broken. We're still jacked up. We're still hypocritical, we're still wrong-headed, we're still flippant of you and entirely too intoxicated with things of this world. 
And yet, you are a rescuing, redeeming, forgiving God. And so we praise you. We have nothing in us that is noteworthy. Everything we have is given by you, so we cannot even come to you and try to barter with things because it's yours, all of it. And so we just fall and we acknowledge your sovereignty, your greatness, your majesty, that you hold the universe. It stays, it continues to work and does not come unraveled and fall apart. And it does that because you hold it in your hand. You uphold the universe by the word of your power. Every heartbeat we have is a gift from you. And so, Father, for those of us in this room who have been rescued from sin, help us to live like it. Help us to live a life of joy and a life of humility because everything we have is just a gift. We have nothing to boast in except Christ. And then for those in this room who maybe not, have not yet become a Christian, we pray that even today you would massage their hearts, even if it's a painful massage that you would go to work. Help us as a church to pursue godliness. In Christ's name, amen.